listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Amen. Is anyone here familiar with Monty Python? They were a comedy group that were brilliant at analyzing society, the church, science, education, ways to govern. If you know about them, you'll be familiar with the movie The Life of Brian, which was not so much making fun of Jesus, but certainly making fun of the church and her adherents. In The Life of Brian, there's a couple of scenes that take place at the Sermon on the Mount. The people in this scene are way at the back of a large group that has come to listen to Jesus teach. Suddenly, an old woman turns to her friend and says, What did he say? And her friend says, Oh, I think he said, Blessed are the poor. And then the first one replies, Oh, that's nice, because we're having a hell of a time. To some degree, these are the type of people Jesus was talking to, along with the people Paul was writing to in Corinth. They're people who hear the words but don't apply them to themselves. They recognize how nice it is that the poor and needy are being blessed, but are unmoved to be part of that blessing. Later on in that same scene, that same old lady turns to her son, who looks like he is home from university, and says to him, Did he say blessed are the cheesemakers? To which the young man replies, Well, yes, but I don't believe he meant blessed are the cheesemakers per se, but blessed are all those involved in the production of dairy products. (laughs) So two things are happening here. One, his answer should have been, no, he didn't say blessed are the cheesemakers. If you start from the wrong place in an argument, you're going to end up in the wrong place. And second, rather than understanding what the statement could possibly mean, he immediately went into a theological critique of what he thought Jesus was saying. I would like to touch on both of the passages that were read this evening. The last two weeks or more, we've been hearing from the Sermon on the Mount. How many times have we heard the teachings and reflections on this passage. I figured out that if I heard these words in church, but once a year since the time I was 15, that I would have heard it 50 times. Anybody figure out how old I am? The problem with becoming that familiar with anything, particularly something from the Bible, it can lose its impact. We start to say, I was going to say this in the old lady's voice, but I won't. We start to say, oh, I've heard this before. I know this passage. We begin to sound like the rich young ruler who says in response to Jesus, who is reminding him what he needs to do to gain eternal life. I know this stuff. I've done it all. And then Jesus says exactly what the young man needs to hear. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He wasn't prepared to hear that. He certainly wasn't prepared to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. So, 
Are we ready to hear what Jesus has to say to us this evening? Hopefully there's a few things that we're going to see. We will see what God imagines the kingdom of heaven is like. We will see what the heart and mind of God is. And we'll see that even our inner world is transformed when we come in contact with God's reign. First, I want to take a look at the section in 1 Corinthians. In the first part of 1 Corinthians, Paul says some pretty amazing things describing what God has done for these people. He talks about the grace that they have been given, that has been given to the people of Corinth in Christ Jesus. He points out that they have all the gifts of the Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. They were teaching with power. Paul reminds them of the promise and says, God will hold tight to you until the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the next chapter, Paul says that they were taught not with words of human wisdom, but of the Spirit who is from God. It is the Spirit of God who knows the mind of God. And then he quotes Isaiah and says, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct the Lord? And then he concludes the argument by saying, But we have the mind of Christ. These are pretty heady words to be hearing from Paul. Whenever we're told that we're special, particularly in the eyes of God, we're reminded just how gifted we really are. I know I tend to go, all right. That's right, I'm pretty good. But then Paul goes into the chapter we read tonight and says, yes, you people are gifted. Yes, you speak in tongues. Yes, you do amazing works. But you're acting like little babies. I can't even give you the solid food of teaching but I still have to feed you pablum. The church in Corinth was constantly arguing about things that matter in this world. Who is the most gifted? Who knew the most important people? Whose ministry was most successful? But Paul says these are the things that our world considers important. Popularity, fame, and power. Argument and debate are good when we're seeking the truth or trying to find common ground. But in Corinth, the church was coming apart because they were acting out of pride and self-centeredness. They were not saying to one another, come let us reason together. They were not, as was said about the Christians in the town of Berea, examining the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. These people from Berea were looking to understand what God was saying to them. The arguments of the Corinthians were designed to give themselves prominence and influence. There are serious things to debate. Do we refuse to go to war because of things that Jesus said? Or do we join the military to protect our country? When we disagree with our government, do we pray for our leaders, believing God has put them in place for a purpose? Or do we engage in protest and even civil disobedience? Do we protect a woman's right to choose what happens to her body? Or do we protect the life of a fetus? Do we value the dignity of all humans and therefore provide food, shelter, and clothing for the poor no matter what? Or do we value the dignity of all humans and hold them accountable for their life choices? None of these questions are simple. 
Every position mentioned here is held by someone within the body of Christ as a response to their faith. How do we debate these questions and remain in fellowship with one another? Paul says that if there is jealousy, there will be strife. If what we want is power, as the world counts power, we will have conflict. If what we want is to be winners, we are acting not with the Spirit of God, but with the Spirit that rules this world. Now as we turn to the voice of Jesus, as recorded in Matthew, we see a bit of the same pattern that Paul used to talk to the people of Corinth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is introducing the dawn of a new reign, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. A society that God has imagined is here, and we have been invited to live in it. We are called to act like citizens of that society. First, he says, if you are poor, if you are grieving, if you are in awe and wonder about your relationship with your Creator, if you have a deep desire to know God, you are blessed. You will be given the kingdom of heaven. You will be given comfort. You will inherit the earth. You will be completely satisfied. Even those who experience persecution because of their connection with Jesus will have the great reward of eternity with God. Then he begins to shift. He says, sure, you are the salt of the earth, but you need to know that there are consequences to your behavior. Yes, you are the light of the world, but don't hide it. Do the good you were created to do. Be the people who belong to this beautiful kingdom. In bringing about this new reign, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. In fact, he compares anyone who sets aside these commands versus the one who practices and teaches these commands. One will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. The other will be called great. This is not simply motivation for doing what the law and prophets say. It's actually a statement of the way things are in the, in the kingdom. If we don't do the things that characterize the behavior of a citizen in this kingdom, it shows that we're just not fully engaged in whatever the kingdom of heaven is about. If we do the things of the kingdom, we are living into the spirit of the kingdom. And what is the spirit of the kingdom? I believe the spirit of the kingdom of God is love. Oh, love. So once again, we're tempted to react to a statement like that. <clears throat> Some may think that's too easy of an answer, which it's not. Some may think it's dumbing down the gospel in its simplicity, which it's not. Jesus makes the connection for his listeners between outward acts and what's going on inside. He says there's a link between murder and anger. There's an association between adultery, and lust. When Jesus says it's better to lop off a limb if it causes you to sin rather than have everything intact and have a broken relationship with God, we begin to see that God's values are way different than ours. It's one thing to behave rightly. It's another thing entirely for one's heart to be ruled by love. Love is the antidote to the poison of hurt and fragmentation. 
Love is the prescription for the disease in our broken world. Just as it's easier to make a sacrifice in the temple than it is to do justice, so it is easier to keep the command against murder than it is to avoid the anger in one's heart. Our hearts must be oriented towards love. You know when you talk about going to a desert island and uh, what music you would take? Or what books you would take? Uh, I have a couple of favorite Bible verses that I think I would like to take. One such section is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. But there are two other passages that speak to the spirit of God's new society. It's the cure that Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians for these people who are fighting and arguing about everything. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's come to be considered not much more than the verse in a Hallmark card. It's come to be considered, I said that, uh, and is often viewed as simply saccharine sentimentality. Really. It talks about giving our bodies to martyrdom and giving all we have to the poor. And if we do any of that without love, those things, as massive as they are, mean nothing. That's how real love is. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is no saccharine sentimentality. This is the center of our faith. Later in Matthew, when the leaders are testing Jesus, they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command, he says. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Love is the center of our faith and must be at the center of all we think and do. Another of my desert island verses is from the prophet Micah. Many know the last part of this passage, but the context is quite wonderful. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before my God with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Now, I don't know if Mike is being sarcastic here or playful or cutting, but he continues. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What could I possibly offer as a sacrifice to my God that would be satisfactory? I have nothing good enough or real enough. And Micah reminds us, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does God require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There has always been difficulty for the people of God being good at practicing religion, but making the mistake that they are in relationship with God because of the religion. God speaks to the people of Israel through the poet Isaiah. 
Listen to see if love is again at the center of these words. And the people are saying, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And God says, On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends up in quarreling and strife and in striking each other. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, that one day to humble yourselves or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? No. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? Is, not, is it not to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every burden? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. God is speaking to the people of Israel who are very good and practiced at religious ritual, believing themselves to be spiritual and holy. What they call fasting isn't fasting. They seem to have missed the point of the rituals. They know how to do them, but they've missed the point. There are places in the gospel that record Jesus saying the same thing, This should not be a surprise. This is the mind of God revealing the kind of society God has imagined. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about something that is important to him and reflects the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. When the Son of God comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We all know that story. Then he tells the ones on the right that they can go right into their eternal reward because they fed him when he was hungry, clothed him, visited him when he was sick and in prison. Of course, Those folks say, when did that happen? And Jesus says, the king will reply, I'll tell you, whatever you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then Jesus says, the king sends those on his left into eternal fire because they didn't do those things. I suspect that these people were good church-going people who read their Bible and prayed and served on church committees. In a desperate defense, they say, What are you talking about? When did we not serve you? And Jesus says, Well, when I was hungry and thirsty and naked and lonely and sick and in prison, you did nothing. And the story ends, They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
After reading these passages, if we spend time trying to figure out how much time we have to spend not eating in order for it to be an authentic fast, or how, much we have to, how long we have to sit on a heap of ashes, or how are the goats and sheep different and what does that have to do with us, or what is meant by eternal fire and eternal punishment, if we're over-concerned with these things, rather than listening to what the story says, listening to what we are being told of the mind of God, we kind of miss the point. I'm all for theology and theological debate. Actually, I love it. But we must not miss what is really being taught here. Jesus is talking about what people do who are the citizens of the society that God imagines, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wants his disciples to be people of integrity, people who are faithful to their promises, people who have no need to swear that they are telling the truth because they're truth-tellers. They should be people who honor their commitments, whether in marriage or to one another. Nobody in their midst are to be shunned or abandoned. They are Christ's own and therefore our brothers and sisters. They are among the ones who are blessed by God's reign. To claim Jesus' message of God's kingdom come, the good news of the different society, the alternative way to live, the church must strive to be the kind of place that reflects God's reign founded on love. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.